Welcome to the NBDA podcast, interviews with industry leaders and subject experts from across the business development world. Join us as we talk about real-world experiences, challenges, and opportunities that can take your career to the next level. The NBDA podcast is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Discover more at yourpodcast.team. Now here's your host, Dave Spray. Welcome to the NBDA podcast. My name is David Spray, and today we're talking with Tim Gray, Senior Vice President with Vistage International. In this episode, we learn more about Vistage, Tim's business development background, and his best practices for business development success. We also talk about the counsel he might give to people considering taking on their first business development role. Tim is a very poised, focused, and seasoned business development professional. Whether you are brand new to business development or have decades of experience, this episode has many great takeaways. Let's get to the show. Hey, Tim. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, David. Thanks so much for having me today. Oh, my pleasure. So let's get right into it. So what is your role with with Vistage and how would you describe your elevator statement? Great, uh, great question. So the role is uh, simply I'm the senior vice president in the field for Vistage in the South region. And my elevator statement would be that to become a better leader and a more effective leader, there's no better way to do it than surround yourself with a group of peers who are like-minded and think the way you do and have your best interests at heart. Being led by someone like a Vistage chair who kind of guides you through the process and helps you elevate the performance in your business every day. So that would be kind of my 30-second pitch if I were describing what we do. Oh, that's that's great. And I'm just curious, who do you think of as your customers? Are they the actual Vistage chairs, or do you think of the actual members as your customers, or, or is it both, ultimately? Yeah. So that's a, that's a great question, Dave. And we do delineate there between the two. We actually consider our Vistage chairs as as mostly our partners our partners okay. in the business that we work with and our members are really our customers. And, and they're really the heroes of, of our business, if you will, along with our chairs being a very close second there because we could not do what we try to do if it were not for our chair community. So that's how, that's how we segment and, and look at both of those very important parts of our ecosystem. Okay. And just for people who are not familiar with Vistage, could you just describe a bit more about kind of Vistage more tactically and kind of mm-hmm. when we talk about a chair, the role they play, just to give Absolutely. people better context? Yeah. So let me let me paint a maybe a little bit clearer picture. So in our business model, have Vistage chairs, as I mentioned, they have a like a contractual relationship, 1099 relationship with us. And they will actually go out and build their own business within our framework using our intellectual property, all the resources we have at our headquarters in San Diego, and basically, they go out and recruit CEOs in their backyard, their their particular market, to become a member of their group. And that group is a group of typically 14 to 16 CEOs that meets once a month with the, with the Vistage chair as being the leader of that group and, and the guide, if you will. And they come together once a month to really resolve business issues, work on opportunities, and hopefully the output of those meetings and everything that happens there is that the members go back and they're able to have better ideas and, and better um, 
processes and, and more diverse set of thoughts and perspectives to implement in their business as a result of being in the group surrounded by different people. So that's the business model, the chair, uh, our members, and the meetings are really a critical part of the, the value statement we have. Okay. Well, thank you for that further uh, insight as to kind of the mechanics of Vistage. And so I guess Vistage would kind of fall under a generic category of like peer advisory groups. Is that Yes, is that I accurate? think that's the best way to categorize us, David. You know, as a peer advisory group, you know, our, our chairs, you know, sometimes we do refer to them as coaches because they do do a little bit of coaching, but mostly mm-hmm. they're leading a peer group and, and, and a peer group by design and by uh, definition is a group of people that we want to really be educated on how to help each other. And the chair is the guide that takes them through that process. But, but I think that's, that's a, that's a good way to state it. Peer advisory group, you know, we're the largest entity in the world that does this work. We have 24,000 members uh, around the globe and 17,000 of those members in the United States. Okay. And that you anticipated my next question around what makes Vistage different than other peer advisory groups. And you answered part of the question already as far as being the largest with 24,000 members worldwide, 17,000 in the U.S. What else is it that makes Vistage unique in the peer advisory space? Yeah, a great question, David. So based on the competitive intelligence and analysis that we do every year, actually, on our competitors in the landscape, by all accounts, it appears that, you know, we actually are the one entity that has a sharper and more determined focus on improving business results as a part of our model. There's several competitors in the landscape that, you know, may focus a little bit more on networking, which is not okay. unimportant, of course, but uh, certainly not what we focus on primarily. Or they may just bring people together, say, once a quarter for a large uh, gathering and they have a keynote speaker who comes in and delivers a you know, business-related message. Whereas our model really is based on the frequency of being there together once a month. And every month that we meet, we're rolling up our sleeves and we're working on those business issues and opportunities that are most critical to our members. And when we look at our competitors and landscape, we have a pretty stark contrast in the dedication and effort we put into that compared to others. Okay. Well, thank you for that that clarification. And yeah, no, that's that's helpful. And as you you uh, are well aware, my wife is uh, a Vistage chair. And based yes. on what I've what I've recently heard, it sounds like she's one of the top chairs uh, in the country based on the most yes. recent uh, ra- rankings. So yeah, I know. So I'm you know kind of uh, vicariously a you know very aware of Vistage and a big a big of the program. So thank you for that that clarification. What about to help the listeners have a better understanding of Vistage. Could you share a client success story, even if you can't share the name of the individual, is just kind of an example of a typical you know, situation where maybe somebody came to Vistage with you know, any number of challenges and then after some time with Vistage found it to be really transformative in their business and or their life? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll share Generic's uh, member story with you. And, and like I said earlier, our members are heroes and, and we really want them to do exceptionally well in their business and actually all as, aspects of their life. One story I'll share with you is really it's a local entity not far from where I live here in, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, who's a member. It's um, 
third generation hardware chain, if you will, here in the uh, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill area. And basically, when this member joined Vistage, I guess about five years ago now, uh, he was actually the third generation owner of that company. And coming in, one of the major issues that he was facing was kind of the transition from that second generation to the third. And there were many issues going on in handing the baton over, if you will. And by being in the Vistage group, this member started you know, basically processing a pretty significant issue for his company here in that transition. And the ideas and perspectives that he got from the rest of the people sitting in his Vistage meeting room every month basically told him that he, he really needed to be very, number one, be very respe- respectful of his father, but sit down and have really a very difficult conversation with him about how this tra- transition needed to work for the betterment of the of the company and all the 75 plus employees who work there. So it took a, it took a while. It took about six months, um, actually, for this transition to work out. But by the end of that sixth month, going into the seventh month, the transition had been completed effectively, smoothly. And to this day, the member uh, testifies to us that if I had not had my Vistage group and the council around me, that would never have been a successful transition for me. We was probably have still been struggling today uh, to figure this out. And, and David, that's just one of hundreds of stories that we have from our members, uh, whether they're trying to sell their business or you know, whether they're trying to grow their business to the next level. There are a lot of success stories that our members share with us and that are really testimonials to the impact of Vistage and the group of people they have sitting around them has on their life and on their business. So that's just one of many. Now, that's a, what a great story. I've heard the expression, uh, it's lonely at the top. And as I understand it, part of the value for a member of being in Vistage is that they're kind of limited without uh, a Vistage group on how they can you know, address issues and challenges because by the nature, they may be limited on being able to discuss things with employees. Like, for example, if they're considering selling their company, you know, that's not a conversation that you may want to have with employees. Even your your senior most person, it may still cause them, you know, some some negative aspects. And they can't necessarily talk to their friends, you know, unless they're other business owners. But even then, it's an unstructured format. They're kind of limited on their advisors because like you can't talk to your bank about the fact that you're having a big downturn in your business and you just lost your biggest customer. That's kind of the last person you want to tell. And then your spouse, you know, who's maybe been your spouse for the 20 years you've run the business, you know, they've probably heard all they want to hear hear about the challenges of your business. So who do you uh, brainstorm ideas with? Who do you talk to? Who you work this through? Is that kind of the idea of, of, of the benefit of some of the benefits of being in Vistage? Yeah, it, it exactly is, David. Uh, you hit it very well there. I, I think, you know, often I hear a member say, <clears throat> you know, well, they've been a member for two years or for 20 years in some cases that I couldn't have done this or I couldn't have done that without my, my Vistage group. And it does go back to what you just ar- articulated that, you know, this is their really de facto board of advisors, uh, if you will, because many of the companies that fit in our Vistage landscape are really not large enough, you know, to have their own board of directors. And Mm -hmm. as you stated, you don't want to have these discussions with just anyone because, you know, it it wouldn't be appropriate for just anyone uh, to hear what is on your mind. But when you're sitting in a room with, you know, 15 or 16 of your peers, 
who really have no other agenda at all but to have your back and to give you wise counsel when requested. That's a pretty empowering feeling uh, for a member to know that I'm surrounded by people that really care about me and they care about the outcome, you know, that I'm seeking. So there's a lot of a lot of power, uh, you know, related to that. And our members just get tremendous value just by knowing that this other group of people in the room have their back. Oh, that's that is I can I can really uh, envision just the power and the comfort that can give to that uh, CEO who before Vistage was a bit lonely at the top. And now has you know really a whole team of peers backing him up now, right? So let's let's kind of shift gears now to the National Business Development Association. How did you first hear about NBDA? Yeah, well, I first heard about it actually through your wife uh, Christine Spray there in Houston. So I've been with Vistage for almost six years now, and I would say probably five and a half years ago, Christine introduced me to the organization and uh, what it was all about and became very interested in it. And I love the work that the organization is doing. And they obviously have a a good leader in Christine. So anything to do with selling business development is kind of like a magnet for me. And I'm very interested in, in any entities that are, you know, trying to create an excellent, an excellent structure, if you will, and a specific way to, you know, better accomplish these things in the world of sales and, and uh, business development. So I, I laud Christine and the team there for the good work they've done in the association. Okay. So, so I can appreciate why you were a fan of NBDA and you wanted to have some involvement, but then you decided to take it to the next level and have uh, Vistage serve as a sponsor. What benefits do you appreciate the most of uh, Vistage's uh, sponsorship? Well, I think I, I would say, David, mostly there are, there are some in, intrinsic benefits of being associated with an entity like this. You know, at Vistage, um, although we're very focused on, you know, the health and wealth, uh, so to speak, of our members and taking care of them and our chairs being well-trained to take care of our members, none of this could be done if it wasn't for basically <clears throat> the uh, the business development activity and the sales activity of our chairs because they actually have to go out and recruit and, and, and make this happen. So, you know, anybody that we actually bring in as a chair today really has to pass that business development and sales test, if you will, to show us that not only can they be a chair, which takes a certain set of skills, but also they can be, you know, a great recruiter. And and I think for Vistage's name to be associated with MBDA has just been like another stamp of approval for us that uh, we want our name affiliated with an entity that has a high level of focus on the importance of this in, in our uh, business structure today. So I would say that with those intrinsic perspectives and values are really the, the biggest asset we've gained. Sure. Sure. Uh, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. So now let's, let's uh, turn the page and talk a bit more about your own business development initiatives and efforts. So in a typical week, how much time would you say you dedicate to business development? Well, in my role, number one, I'm responsible for the health and welfare and the performance of about 140 plus chairs in the South region. 
So that keeps me fairly busy, to be candid with you. Sure. I'm also what I call a a novice recruiter, and I'm always looking for talent uh, in the chair community, people who might wish to become business chairs, I should say. So I spend probably, you know, on my own, I'm going to say, you know, 15, 15 hours a week doing recruiting of chair candidates that I feel like have a great profile and uh, who have an interest in doing this really you know, important work of being a business chair. So I spend a fair amount of time uh, really you know, using LinkedIn as one of my primary resources to go to and to uh, use it to narrow down a long list to a short list. And then I do some outbound messaging you know, through LinkedIn or by email to reach that potential candidate. And then you know, based on the responses I get, then I work with that even shorter list and set up calls with them to go through what we're looking for here and to see if there's a fit, to see if they have an interest in doing this kind of noble work of chairing and if they also have the ability to go out and, and really build a business on their own. So sure. um, so I spend a lot of time doing that. And, and our chairs, of course, take, ter- take care of the member acquisition. So that's not an issue for me, but uh, I'm constantly looking for good chair candidates. Yeah, I'm I'm actually surprised that you're able to carve out that much time because you know what we would call <laughs> business development you're, you is really your chair recruitment efforts, yeah. and um, so yeah, so that makes sense. And is that about that 15 hours a week? Is that about how much time that you you'd like to be spending on business development, or is it more or less than than what your goals would be? I, I think for right now it's about right, David. With everything else that I have going on, again, this is actually something I'd love to do. Is and it's not actually a written part of my job description. We do have a recruiting team on staff at Vistage that does a lot, but I really feel that when I can source and bring in a new recruit on my own, that the depth of relationship that I have with them starting from inception when I first reached out to them becomes uh, really significant. And as I nurture them along in the path of becoming a chair, <clears throat> it it really kind of creates a sense of, you know, permanence to our relationship that even when they become a chair, yeah, obviously that's continuing. And it, it, it makes it easier, you know, as, as we all probably could understand, to actually, when they become a chair, to keep going to them after the fact and asking them to, you know, do more for their members or create another group, if you will, because the, the market needs that. And there are members out there that are not members currently that will need that. And so I think, you know, rewinding the clock here for a moment, going back to that moment of the initial reach out in the establishment of my relationship with them just makes makes it easier for one year, two years down the road for me to come back to them and say, you know, listen, um, this is what I would like for you to do in the market. You know, can you help us achieve that? And it, it makes that ask much easier if I was the personal recruiter that brought them in. Sure. That, yeah, that makes sense because of the, it'd be, it'd be less effective if you had no contact with them until Vistage called you up and said, Hey, you've got a new chair in your region. Um, And I do interview those, you know, David, just to be clear, I do interview them even when they're not sourced by me, but the depth of the relationship, you know, just gets uh, much uh, more firm if I'm the one that actually sourced them. Sure. That, that makes sense. So, 
140 chairs in a typical year. How much? How many uh, chairs will will uh, you add to your region? You know, either through your efforts, efforts, or a combination of yours and the in-house recruiters. Yeah, great, great question. So uh, last fiscal year, we launched uh, 23 brand new chairs in the South region. The year before that, roughly. 16. We're on target this year to launch maybe 20. So if you took a three-year average there, that's about 60 chairs in three years or 20 new to the region each year. And we're adding those across several markets in the South region. It's not just you know one market; it's multiple markets where we're adding them to kind of you know balance out our efforts. We we don't want to put, for example, too many chairs in one market at one time. We might be building. But sure. in a market, say like Houston, which is really large, we could potentially put two chairs in there at one time. We're building a group and we don't have to worry about them really running in, running into each other in terms of prospects, et cetera. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's great to have, have that many new chairs out of the uh, 140. So as far as like business development best practices, you have, have, uh, refined over the years. You had mentioned that LinkedIn is a big part of it. Are there some other business development best practices that that come to mind that you have? Well, I think, you know, so the pandemic changed a lot for us all, right? I think, you know, if I if I think about pre pre-pandemic context, one of our most successful ways to attract new chairs was to really host an in-market event. You know, we would pick a nice hotel in the market. We'd have like a breakfast meeting where we would ask new chair candidates that we had profiled somehow to come in and be a part of this breakfast meeting that we have where we'd expose them to what it's like to be a Vista chair. We'd run through a brief presentation with them. We'd have an experienced chair come in and really talk about, you know, what it was like to be a chair. So this was one way that we actually got a lot of interest in chairs uh, or chair candidates who wanted to pursue this work. I'll be candid with you. You know, the uh, the pandemic uh, has changed uh, our perspective a bit on how effectively we can recruit, you know, virtually. And uh, although we still do some in-market things on occasion like that, we're doing more of these online right now where we invite just a group of candidates into that same type of agenda that we had in person. And now we're having a a chair come on, talk about what it's like to be a chair, the life of a chair, if you will. And then we talk about the process of how long it takes them to become a chair, what the bill looks like. So Mm -hmm. our business development aspect in in this regard, a little different for me reaching out to them individually is where we try to bring a, a, a large number into a group and expose them initially to what it's all about. And uh, and then usually out of that, if we have 20 people attend a session like that, we'll probably wind up with 10 of those that we keep on our active recruiting list and uh, we work them until they're ready to come into the fold. So I'd say, David, you know, that that still works for us. And that coupled with the individual reach outs we do is enables us to keep our pipeline full of good chairs. Okay, well, that's 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 interesting. How the pandemic is, is is like a lot of businesses has required a pivot, but it sounds like that pivot might actually have some durable benefit even post pandemic. Yes, we think so. So, when you talk about you know your individual outreach and building you know rapport with potential chairs, could you just dig a, a bit more into that as far as like 
maybe some specific things you do to build that rapport and trust? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, you know, not unlike any other sales or business development endeavor, it's critical to establish a, a rapport and a relationship out of the gate. So, you know, just to give you some context here, I probably interview, you know, on average anywhere from six to 10 new chair candidates uh, a week. And the first thing that I always do is, you know, obviously I'm, I'm reviewing the resume. If I have that, or I'm certainly reviewing their LinkedIn profile, I want to know where they went to school, what they've been doing lately. And so that I come in armed with uh, some level of intelligence about who they are. And, and so I start, I start out with something, you know, very personal. You know, if I'm talking to somebody in Atlanta who went to Georgia Tech, for example, I'm a North Carolina fan. So we start talking about the, the rivalry between our two schools and, you know, how that can be, you know, pretty, pretty heated at times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that just allows a, a personal relationship to start to form our, I, their kids, you know, you know, where are your kids going to school? And, and we talk about that. So establishing that personal connection at first with no matter who you're talking to, it, it makes it easier then to, mm-hmm. you know, segue into, you know, the business aspects of, of why you're calling. So that is so critical. I would say there, this, that form is more of an art than it is a sign on how you do that because there's no written playbook on how to establish that personal connection and rapport, but you've got to do it uh, first. And, and then that allows you uh, to go into the other things that you want to talk about with this candidate and they become more accepting. You can almost see kind of the ice melt away if there were any mm-hmm. ice to begin with, right? Uh, because you've personally connected with them, you've touched them in some way, and you've said something that's meaningful to them, and and vice versa. They've gotten in the conversation with you, so uh, it just makes it easier, much easier to then discuss, you know, the business at hand. Sure. And so, in summary, really, your rapport building really starts by doing your homework before the call, so you can identify some uh, absolutely areas that you have commonality. And, uh, and such. Yeah, that, that, that's, that certainly resonates with me. That's, uh, in, you know, in fact, before our call started today, I had, uh, taken a look at your uh, LinkedIn profile and saw a post you had of, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar with, uh, the famous UCLA coach, John Wooden. And, right. uh, even though it's been uh, probably a year since I last spoke to you, we both, uh, played competitive basketball in our earlier days. And so kind of starting with that, uh, and I didn't even do it on purpose. It just, I guess I've done this long enough that it just, you know, kind of came right to the surface. And so, yeah, no, I, I certainly know what you mean. And, and we, uh, we engaged in that, that type of dialogue and rapport building ourselves this morning. Yeah, we, we sure did. So how do you recharge and stay focused on your business development slash recruiting goals? Because I, I, I suspect that, you know, not every single person you, you reach out to just jumps at the chance to become a Vistage chair. And, and so I'm sure there's a certain amount of rejection. So how do you, you know, reach, recharge and stay focused and positive on those recruitment initiatives? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And I think one that actually the answer to it may haunt some people. I actually embrace it, to be honest with you. You know, like you said, there is a fair amount of rejection. Not everybody's going to connect with you or, you know, look at your message and and say, I'm interested in that. Many people are going to say, no, that's not for me or, or, 
you know, whatever, however they may respond negatively. But I, to me, I never take rejection personally, you know, because I think that's where you can get in a, in a mindset that's going to take you down, uh, you know, kind of a dark path. I just look at it as, Hey, you weren't interested. Someday you might be. And, and someday I may reach back out to you and I move on to the next person. And so they're out of my mind, out of my thoughts, and I focus on the task at hand. So I come in every day uh, when I do a lot the, the designated time to, to do BD work. I just I focus really maniacally on, you know, those three hours or whatever I'm going to do that day to make sure I put it in. And I do have a goal uh, every day when I step into my office that I'm going to secure at least three appointments, Zoom appointments with potential chair candidates for that day. And if I only hit two and I'm at the end of three hours and I have to do other things, then guess what? The next day that I do it, four. I think it's important to have a goal and it's important not to take rejection personally. And then if you, if you do those two things, I think, and you have your, you know, your elevator pitch down and you're a great connector, you're going to, you're going to hit your goals. Uh, you just got to stay focused on it and, and again, not let the rejection get you down. And that would be my advice to people who are, are really trying to be steadfast on what they're doing and, and trying to hit a certain number, a quality number. And, you know, I think there's no secret sauce there. It's just I often refer to as elbow grease and staying with it. Sure. You know, you remind me to to make another basketball analogy. When you look at somebody who like, say, misses their first 10 shots in a game, the, uh, the, the average shooters will tend to say, oh, geez, this isn't my day. This is a sign that I should stop shooting for this game and just play defense and get rebounds. But from what I understand, the really great scorers, you know, the Larry Birds of the world, the Michael Jordans, that their attitude was, hey, I'm a, I'm a 50% shooter. And if I've missed my first 10, then that, that's, the, in my mind, my probability of making the 11th shot is way higher than 50% because I'm going to have to make 10 more just to hit my average. And exactly. they, and that's, and I know in, and I've, I know you've witnessed this firsthand where you can just see the body language of, you know, Michael Jordan can miss 10 shots and his body language is no different. It's almost like you can see his resolve stiffen and it's like, so for his next shot, he's heading to the, to the hole and he's going to try to get just an easy layup in to just kind of get some momentum going. So, so does that, does that seem to kind of resonate with you? Yeah, that's a great analogy Uh, you know, and you mentioned Jordan. Of course, I have an affinity for Michael in sure. the school, school here at uh, UNC where I am uh, now. And, you know, he definitely, even in college, when he was a much younger person, he had that grit and resolve that, you know, no matter if he missed his first, you know, five or six shots, he was going to keep taking his shots that were good shots until they started going down. And uh, he took that to the NBA with him and actually with a whole nother level in terms of his performance. But yes, it's the same mentality that, you know, I know I'm pretty good at this. And because I struck out on my first three or four attempts to connect with somebody and get them to talk to me, I know it's good. The average is going to catch up and, and I'll get them. So it's, it's really, it's really a very uh, close analogy to what we're, we're doing in the world of business development and, and sales. Mm-hmm. No, I would agree. What would you say to somebody who 
is maybe looking to transition into a business development role? Because I know, you know, sometimes when somebody is, a, is in a different part of the organization, you know, maybe in the finance and accounting group or engineering or marketing, mm-hmm. they look at the business development people and they just think, wow, they haven't made, they, they make the most money. All they do is just, you know, go have lunch and drinks and play golf with people. Like this looks like, like, uh, like something for me, but what what might you say to somebody who is interested in making that shift to business development, but perhaps doesn't fully understand the role? But it doesn't necessarily mean that they wouldn't be good at it. But if you're right. giving them some advice on you know, on on going into that role, what might you you say either in terms of trying to either encourage or discourage them depending on their uh, personality and goals? Yeah, uh, that's a good question, David. So uh, there's two things, actually, I would counsel them on. One of them I I stated a moment ago is that if you have any fear whatsoever of the word no, then it's probably not the right move for you until you can overcome that fear. You may be able to overcome that fear once you get into the environment, but you've got to let that fear go uh, because it's going to happen a lot in in this role of uh, developing business and selling. I would say the other thing to be candid with you, I know it's true for me, and I think it's true for most of the really good salespeople that I've ever been around in my life and and business development people is a a competitive nature uh, built into them. Because I think even though I have had some salespeople tell me throughout their career, well, I'm not that competitive. I just go out and you know do my thing. And I always think that as a bit disingenuous. And I think every great sales or business development person is kind of uber competitive and, and they want to win not at the expense of doing things the wrong way or shortcutting but you want to see your name at the top of the list i remember my very first sales job going back to 1978 at dun and brad street when i was selling as we called it books and reports almost sure. door to door to businesses you know there would be a weekly sales ranking that came out by fax and that day to all the branch offices and I couldn't wait to get into the office on Friday afternoon and see where my name was on the list. You know, I wasn't making a lot of money. Almost more important to me was was my name near the top of the list, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think you need that super competitive spirit to be really uh, good at, at this role. And if you don't have that, I would almost question whether that would be the appropriate move for you because most of the salespeople, like I said, in my lifetime have been super competitive and that just adds another degree uh, of uh, efficiency and effectiveness to what they're trying to do. And so th- those would be my two words of or pieces of okay. advice is don't fear no and be uber competitive if it's, if it's actually inside you. Yeah, that I I agree. And that I just rewatched a movie uh, with my dad who was in town visiting. It was an ESPN movie from, I think, about six years ago. I don't know if you saw it. It was, I think, called Magic and Bird. It was about an hour and a half yes. kind of documentary on their relationship. Right. And it was so fascinating just how competitive they were that when one of them would shoot 500 shots in the summertime and they would want to stop, they would think, I bet that other guy shot 600 today and I don't (laughs) want him to beat me. And, and they just, uh, that competitiveness really, uh, really drove them in a very productive fashion. And Bird said something that I, I had forgotten 
but that he said that every morning when he'd get up, he'd get the paper and look at magic stats in the, from his game. And, right. uh, and he did that for years and years. And he said once magic had to resign or retire because of the HIV positive test, the bird said he stopped uh, looking at the box scores after that because it just, it, it didn't matter anymore because his, his benchmark for success was no longer in the game. So his, his desire to be as competitive, it just was not as what it was. And I mean, also, he also was physically breaking down too. But yeah. then, so since you referenced Michael Jordan a couple of times, I'll, I'll throw one more thing in here that I think uh, highlights uh, the importance of the competitive spirit, you know, as talented as Michael uh, was and his ability on the basketball court. And some might say that was unparalleled. I, I would say even more than his talent was his will to win uh, right. was unmatched. And that really put, him and you know the the run that the Bulls had to win six championships that's really what put them over is Michael's unwillingness to accept you know defeat and that he would do everything he needed to do individually lifting his teammates whatever it took you know he was going to win because he was he still is to this day hyper competitive I hear stories of Michael all the time from friends of mine in Charlotte that hey if you go out and play a game of pool with Michael even at almost 60 years old now, you better be prepared to be in a fight for your life because he's going to try <laughs> to win that game. So th- that is so important in, in this world of selling and business development. I agree. There's, I'd, I'd heard this story that I think it was Jordan's rookie year that partway through the season, who was his coach his rookie year? Was that Kevin? Do you remember? His rookie year, great question. I'm not sure who that was. was I, Kevin Lockery? Um, I can't remember exactly. Yeah, I can't either. But he he had noticed that in practice, like partway through the season, he realized that Jordan's team had never lost a scrimmage game in practice. And he started wondering, I wonder how Michael would handle defeat. So what he started doing was, you know, when Michael's team would be about to win the game, you know, maybe they're playing to 15 and they've got 13 buckets, that he would then make Michael switch teams to the team losing. And right. supposedly Michael would just glare at him, but the coach still was not able to find out how Michael would take defeat because he would bring that losing team back and they would be the winning team. And it sounded like no matter what the coach did, no matter how he stacked the team, that Michael's team still always won. And, uh, and the, I could just imagine, you know, that rookie Jordan just glaring at him, right? He'd worked really hard to take his team to the brink of victory. And then the coach would make him switch teams, Right. Could you just imagine that glare that he would receive? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's but it's so important. And you know, no matter what you're doing in the world of business, you know, the competitive spirit overcompensates for so many other potential deficiencies that you might have. I'm not. I'm not minimizing that you need don't need to work on those other deficiencies. But if you're competitive and you're putting the work in to be the best you can be, that really. Um, can mask some other things that maybe are not as strong in your repertoire. So uh, I never underestimate the competitive spirit in the world. Of- well, that is a great kind of wrap up for our, our interview. So Tim, I really appreciate you carving out the time to talk to me and share some of your lessons and uh, give people an insight kind of in the day in the life of, of Tim Gray and was there anything that we didn't cover that you think uh, we need to mention before we wrap up? 
I, I don't think so, David. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on the, uh, the broadcast and, and just share with you. And it's been a lot of fun. And again, I really appreciate the invitation to spend some time with you this morning. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Well, hey, you have a great day, Tim. Thanks again. Okay. Thanks so much, David. Bye-bye. And there we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at podcast.nbda.co. And you can find out more about being a member of the National Business Development Association at nbda.co. That's it for this episode. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next time.